Hey everyone, my name is Iman Chaudhry. And my name is Danielle Solish, and today you're listening to the 32nd episode of Seeing Clearly, which is a pre-clerkship guide to all things ophthalmology. On today's episode, we will be interviewing Dr. Rishi Gupta. So a little bit about Dr. Gupta. Dr. Gupta is a board certified in the U.S. and Canada, and Dr. Rishi Gupta is an associate professor and vitreoretinal specialist in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He attended medical school at the University of Toronto and completed his ophthalmology residency training at the University of Ottawa and received his vitreoretinal fellowship from McGill University. Dr. Gupta actively participates in research and has over 50 publications in prominent peer-reviewed journals. He is regularly invited to speak on a variety of topics, which include medical and surgical retina, wellness, communication, ergonomics, ethics, and complaints. He has received many awards for his work in medical education, research, his surgical videos, as well as his excellence in patient care. Dr. Gupta's best-selling book, Reflections of a Pupil, was named one of the top must-have books for beginner ophthalmologists and has been a required book in some residency programs. He most recently published a children's book, which is entitled Milk, Eggs, Butter, and Broccoli. So without further ado, we'd love to introduce Dr. Gupta. Danielle, Iman, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being with us uh, today. We'll uh, jump right into our first question here, which we ask all of our guests on the uh, podcast, which is, could you talk a little bit about your journey to ophthalmology? Absolutely. So ophthalmology was love at first sight for me, so to speak. I was just blown away by the anatomy. It's so beautiful. You know, the first time I held a 90 diopter lens and I saw the nerve in 3D, the retina, the vessels, I was just hooked. I had a lot of really nice mentors who made the experience just so positive and got me excited. And then it's kind of a snowball. You know, you read more, um, you see more, you get more excited and you go deeper down the rabbit hole. And um, yeah, I feel very fortunate that I got in and, and I still love it to this day. When I went into medicine, I initially wanted to do pediatrics and I got on the rotation and I was just deathly ill the whole time, you know, with all the viruses and all the germs that they bring in. And I, I just gather, I, I don't have the most robust immune system. So I thought to myself, okay, I can't do this to myself long-term. And then, of course, as you move through, I, I had that whole, you know, do I want to do surgery? Do I want to do just a medical specialty? And surgery really grabbed me. Um, and the rotation I had in ophthalmology, again, the, the beauty of the eye, seeing it under the microscope, the precision of the surgery, uh, and, and just, you know, so many cool things about it, the, all the gadgets we get to use, the imaging, um, and really the, the amazing impact we can have on, you know, something that patients cherish the most, their sight. Uh, with such positive outcomes, you would see patients giving physicians hugs, you know, so it was just such a positive, wonderful atmosphere to be a part of. And uh, again, you know, there were some really, really kind residents who are who were ahead of me and uh, who are friends now who really um, showed me the way and were very kind to me. And uh, again, I feel very fortunate to uh, to have matched. That's great. I think that it's nice because what you said and what a lot of our guests say is just the mentorship and, you know, who you meet along the journey is really what carries you through. And I think it's been the same for both Iman and myself. And so it's really nice to hear that. So now that, you know, you got into ophthalmology and then we, as we, our listeners would have heard from the bio that you completed um, a vitreoretinal fellowship. So could you just talk a little bit about a day in the life as a retina specialist, or if your day-to-day is a bit different, maybe a few days 
Yeah, I always talk to our medical students and our residents about this acronym P-A-R-T, so PART, you know, doing your part for the academic mission. And what I love about medicine when I talk to them is that medicine affords us the opportunity to become involved in so many different things, you know, such a variety in the week, in the month. And so that acronym, you can think of patient care, you, think, you can think of administration, research, and teaching. And so I get to do all of these things, which is really neat. So with patient care, ophthalmology um, gives you the chance to have a really nice balance of that clinic and OR. Uh, as a retina specialist, I'm on call here uh, every fourth week. Most weeks are, you know, steady, I would say, and some weeks are really, really busy. I get to do quite a bit of surgery during those weeks, which is um, a lot of fun for me because I love surgery. Things like retinal detachment, sometimes intraocular foreign bodies. Um, otherwise, you know, other surgeries. Uh, Daniel, you were here on elective not too long ago, so you saw macular holes, vitreal macular traction, epiretinal membrane, secondary eye wells. So that's one thing I love about ophthalmology and especially retina is the variety in the OR. And then in the clinic, we have, um, you know, uh, with anti-VEGF therapy, we have a lot of patients who come every month or every two months, and you get to know these people quite well. So uh, that longitudinal care aspect is quite nice. Uh, in other cases, I might see patients preoperatively, postoperatively, and then they might finish off their journey, you know, moving back to the optometrist after a little while or general ophthalmologist. So uh, the patient care side is, is a lot of fun with lasers and injections, a lot of variety. And then uh, with the administrative side, I sit on a couple of committees um, at our department. So that takes up some evenings, for example. I sit on a few committees with our national organization, the Canadian Ophthalmological Society. And then with the American Society of Retina Specialists, I volunteer some time for the annual meeting as well. So that's a whole other aspect, right? The administration side. And the research side, we've always got some trials running, uh, maybe some case reports with med students or residents, getting ready for a conference that's coming up to present perhaps. And then when you get to my stage, you get invited to you know review for all of our peer reviewed journals. So that takes up a little bit of time. Um, and then the last part is the teaching, which I love to do. I get really passionate about that. And I get to teach you know first year med students, second year med students, um, our elective students from across the country in the clinic, uh, in the OR. So, you know, resident teaching is uh, not for the faint of heart, but it's really, really re rewarding. You know, uh, thankfully we've got such great residents and um, that mentorship side is really, really uh, wonderful. And we're teaching, of course, with, um, you know, our nurses as well. I give didactic lectures, uh, grand rounds, visiting professors. And um, one of my favorite things to do is uh, I run a email listserv, I guess, of about 25 retina specialists, and we, we share cases, you know, and um, when we talk about teaching, there's that saying, every teacher is a learner, every learner is a teacher. So I get to learn so much, you know, on difficult cases or interesting cases. Well, how would you approach it sort of thing? So uh, for a lot of those, you mentioned surgical videos. I really enjoy putting those together. That's uh, one of my new passion projects. Each of those takes about two hours to eight hours to kind of put together. Um, but they're really fun at the end of the day. So there's a lot of variety, a lot of mix, you know, in uh, in medicine um, and a lot of different then avenues for you to really find your passion and uh, and find out what what, um, you know, drives you. Thank you so much for breaking it down so well for our listeners. It's uh, amazing to see how diverse your practice is just within, you know, ophthalmology and then even uh 
as a subspecialist, it can be so diverse, even though you think that you're focusing a lot more, I guess. Um, so it's nice for our students to be able to see that. So I really appreciate it. And it sounds like you have a very busy day today. So thank you again for, for taking the time to do this podcast with us throughout all of uh, all of your busy schedule. Yeah, my uh, pleasure. Uh, just like you mentioned, uh, you have some interests, I guess, outside of, of work as well and outside of the clinical realm. And so uh, like Danielle had mentioned in uh, the bio, uh, you're an author to the book Reflections of a Pupil. Um, do you mind talking about what inspired you to write this book and share with our audience one highlight of the book, maybe? Sure, I'd love to. So Reflections is uh, now five years old. And the way it sort of came to be was I finished up fellowship. And when I moved here, I would be teaching the medical students, teaching the residents. And it was always sort of the same principles and concepts and teaching points that would come up. Um, I'm a big believer in storytelling in medicine. And so if I tell you, you should do this, right? You may remember it or you may, you know, take it to heart. But if I can package that in an interesting story, a little bit of humor, maybe a self-deprecating story, um, that might stick a little better. So I'm telling all the same stories, you know, sort of again and again. And I think to myself, I should write this stuff down, you know. Um, I thought to myself, this could help a lot of people. And so I embarked on this two-year journey, pretty much, of writing each week, you know, six to 14 hours per week. Had no idea of how to do any of this. I lucked into finding uh, a really good, you know, my editor, who's become my really, really good friend. Um, and uh, we finally figured out how to, how to publish. And it went from me thinking, I can help so many people, to... Uh, this whole journey actually helped myself so much. You know, I spent two years regularly thinking about who I want to be as uh, not just a physician, but, you know, a husband, a son, a father. And um, so at the end of it, you know, I came out uh, feeling so much better, understanding so much of, you know, who I wanted to be. And, and the basic premise came from uh, a lot of these stories are from all my great mentors, people who really inspired me and who at the heart of it, pushed me to always do better, always do better for our patients, you know, and that's really at the core of the book. Um, I challenge anybody to pick up the book and not take at least one thing away. Think about, you know, how, how can I reflect on this to do better kind of thing? And it's been really fun. I mean, I've gotten emails from all over the world of people who found value in it. There's a group in Australia who uh, started to do a chapter book club. So Every sort of, you know, week or couple of weeks, they take a chapter as a group and they read it over and talk about it and dissect it. Um, so it's been a, a really fun sort of thing overall. Well, congratulations, first of all, even even when you explained your your part acronym, you failed to mention that you are also an author. So that is absolutely incredible. You are very busy and so accomplished. So it's incredible. Also, it, it's true. Like what I take away from my mentors is hearing stories for sure. I think that we get Put a lot of information on us as students and you know when you hear stories and can connect to stories or great lessons i think those are the greatest takeaways so thank you for Absolutely. putting that into work i'll tell you i think iman you asked me to share you know uh one one chapter sort of from from the book yeah. or idea from the book and mm -hmm. so one that i think is really great that i i do lean on quite a bit when i'm interacting with um either a med student or a resident is a reminder that our, our patients 
are sitting there. So we may be excited about what we're seeing because it's the first time we ever see something. Uh, or uh, we might forget that they're there and get frustrated, you know, and, and these are really important things to remember. So I had a great mentor in Calgary when I was on elective, Kareem Punja is an awful plastic surgeon there who's a, a wonderful teacher. And I, I cut a suture too short. You know, he really gets you involved, which is wonderful. And I said, oops. And the poor patient who's under the drape, you know, you hear this little anxious, oops, this question mark, you know. Um, and when I reflect back on that, you know, you can feel this power differential between this physician who's operating and this patient who's just laying there vulnerable under the sheet. And the language we use is so important. Oops is such a charged word that you you wonder, you know, what does that oops mean? It was nothing because it was just a long suture and I knew that, but they didn't know that, right? Maybe something terrible had happened. Uh, and what I also talk about in this passage is the mentorship and uh, the kindness that he showed me. You know, I didn't get yelled at. <laughs> he said, uh, just simply, you know, when we, when we talk in the operating room, we have to remember the patients are awake and we have to watch the vocabulary we use. And, in, and so in, in our OR, we don't say, oops, we say, excuse me. So excuse me is so much less charged, right? If we say, oh, excuse me, um, then that probably wouldn't make the patient too worried. And then if I fast forward, then a couple of years, I was a resident and I really wanted to show a medical student, this patient who had been sent in with a retinal detachment, but in fact had a choroidal melanoma. And I didn't warn them. They looked in and they said, oh, that's so cool because the first time they had the indirect on the 28 lens and they looked in and, and, you know, that was my fault. I felt for not priming them and just reminding them about that. So um, that's just an example of, you know, one of the passages from the book. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And especially with, you know, there's, especially in academic centers, there's teaching with almost all patients. And so, you know, being with other people and showing things is, it definitely comes with some like charge in the words and the language you use. And it's, you know, I, I mean, I can admit there are like times when I, you know, forget, oh, there's a patient right in front of me when going through that. So it's a great lesson. And I urge all of our listeners right now to, you know, grab a copy of the book themselves. And hopefully these are lessons that you can take away yourselves. And worst case scenario, it does a great job for propping up an uneven table. <laughs> exactly. To put your laptop on when you're staring on Zoom. Exactly. Got it. <laughs> um, and now just switching gears a little bit away just from like ophthalmology, but still on the topic of lessons. You know, could you talk a little bit about how you achieve a work-life balance while being in medicine and any tips you have for students? So it's tough, right? I mean, even when I was answering that question, I felt exhausted. <laughs> I think when we hear talks on balance, not infrequently, there's a lot of you should, right? You should spend less time at work. You should work out. You should sleep. You should eat well. And not always is it recognized what you're giving up, right? There's only a finite amount of time, energy, and resources. And, um, what you have to recognize is probably you got to where you were by not having the best balance in the world. You know, when we think of success in its traditional form, uh, many people get to that stage by not being very balanced, you know? Um, and so I think 
one thing is to recognize that um, if we are to try and get a better balance, we are going to probably have to give something up. And, and what is that? So when I think of balance, I always like to also think about the concept of goals. I think if you know at least what you want, if you have goals, short-term, medium-term, long-term, and if you can prioritize those things, then that's very helpful to start your process about trying to figure out how you can actually balance things out. I think you can be balanced and actually not, you know, when we talk of balance, we're also probably trying to think about wellness. And I think you can be very well balanced from a traditional sort of concept and not be well, you know, I'll give an example. So I work three days a week, let's say six hours a day. That sounds pretty nice. And in my other time, I meditate. I go out and play hockey and tennis and I socialize with family and friends. Sounds very balanced, right? But those three days I'm at work, I feel harassed. I don't feel respected. When I'm with my family, uh, nobody listens to me. When I go to soccer and hockey or whatever those examples were, I'm frustrated because I can't play like I used to play 20 years ago. And, um, you know, when I meditate, I'm just constantly thinking about how I'm frustrated with something with my friends, right? So somebody's not well. <laughs> and I think you can be not balanced in the least. And at least in some domains, you can still probably be very well. I mean, I, you know, have listened to your podcast and, and congratulations on it. I think you're doing a wonderful thing. Um, you've had a lot of amazing speakers and guests on the show who are, again, they have the same amount of time in a day that you and I have. Um, so in some regards, they probably, I don't, I don't know all of them that well, but in some regards, they probably aren't balanced uh, in the traditional sense. Um, but they may find passion and joy um, and happiness in, in what they're doing, you know? So in some, some domains of wellness, uh, they may be doing great. So I think in all of this, you have to A, accept that you can't have everything. B, not everything has to happen all at the same time. So that's where the goals thing comes in. Like I have a list, a running list of all sorts of stuff to do. And some stuff may not happen until two years goes by. You know, we live a long life. But I think we always feel like we have to do everything now. We have to be balanced now. Um, and when we think of wellness, um, you know, this is... This is probably actually a two-hour talk and better, maybe a two-day symposium, all to prepare you for a lifetime pursuit. One of my favorite definitions of wellness is actually the active pursuit of activities that will allow you to have holistic health. And so, you know, how do you find um, things that make you joyful? Um and when we think of different domains of, of wellness, you think of, you know, physical, mental, and social. That's the way I break it down, professionally and personally. So each of those things is kind of a temperature gauge. It's not a yes or a no. You know, you may be a little bit more well on the physical side, but on the mental side, and that's probably the one that we uh, spend the least amount of time on, um, maybe we're not doing so well, you know. And all this stuff takes work. It takes a lot of work to be well. If you want to be a great anything, right? It's 10,000 hours. If you want to be a great piano player, you have to play piano every day, hours and hours a day. 
and you have to do it the right way. You know, one of the chapters I write about in in reflections is um, there's another story. So I used to play oboe, and so you know I wanted to play sax number one, trumpet number two, and we had to write down three instruments that you'd play. So I write down oboe as a joke, and nobody else wrote down oboe. So my my band teacher's thrilled. She makes me play the oboe, and I was too shy a kid at that point to say anything different. So I played the oboe. I just went along with it. And it was terrible, you know, the, the instrument, it sounded like a duck. And um, I really didn't practice, you know, and so my, my teacher would say to me, if I was practicing, which I wasn't, that things weren't getting a lot better. So I must have been practicing the wrong way. The one thing I took away from my oboe lessons was that saying practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent. And so you have to do a lot of practice to get good at anything and you have to do it the right way. And often that might be by getting help, right? So getting a, you know, a coach um, or a trainer from the physical side of um, being well. And from the mental side, you know, um, there's lots of paths to helping with mindfulness or life coaching, that sort of thing. I don't think we get any teaching on that, you know, anywhere along the way. And it is so important because as medical students, as residents, Often we are really a group of uh, overachievers who are perfectionists and who are our worst critics often, right? There's that inner voice that says that we're imposters, um, that you know we're not doing good enough for our patients, not doing good enough for ourselves, and we have to be kinder to ourselves. So there's all these personal things, there's these interpersonal things, there's these systemic things that come into play with wellness. And there's an ophthalmologist, Agnes Wong, who is a neuro-ophthalmologist in Toronto, who has taught us a lot about this. There's a, an amazing article that she's written in 2020 in the Canadian Journal of Ophthalmology that I'd encourage everybody to read. Um, her story is beautiful, and she conveys it uh, really, really well. And so, again, I think we have to reflect on um, how we can achieve balance while still keeping us on the path of our goals, the things that we're, we're hoping to um, achieve, while being kind to ourselves and uh, looking to spend time in getting well in those domains of physical, social, and mental, um, and recognizing that, you know, again, you, you can't do everything, can't have everything all at once, and there's an old uh, Rolling Stones song, you know, that comes to mind now that's uh, you, you can't always get what you want, right? So it ain't always going to work out in life, right? But you have to have the mental strength, the resiliency to be able to um, stay through that and, um, and not let the fall crush you. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's a Pretty contracted version of the two-hour talk, which is a contracted version of the two-day symposium. <laughs> Thank you so much for that condensed version of, of the answer. We would love to, to hear the two-hour, two-day talk, but uh, I'm sure our listeners really appreciate at least that uh, little snippet. And I mean, as, uh, as a resident and once med student, you know, I definitely relate to being told it's so important to have a work-life balance, but sometimes you're left just sitting there like, how do I, how do I do that? And um, I think the key takeaway I, I took from, from what you said is that it really is about being kind to yourself and reflecting on, on what's important to you. So 
Um, I really appreciate uh, you going through all of that with Danielle and I, and for our listeners, I think uh, it'll be really helpful for, for a lot of the students that are listening. And I, I had a little bit of a follow-up to that, which is, you know, you mentioned some broader goals and broader ideas for, for people in general to maintain a work-life balance, but we do have a lot of students and medical students specifically um, that listen to the podcast. So I was wondering if you had any tips for students to prevent burnout uh, while they're going through such a tough uh, stage in their life? Sure. Um, I mentioned during writing, you know, reflections of a pupil, I was spending a lot of time just thinking, you know, and reflecting. And, um, and that's a really important thing to do. Life is just so crazy. Uh, busy I find you know it's always on to the next thing on to the next thing somehow carving out a little bit of time um, just to allow your mind to relax you know take a break from social media right it's uh, a world where we're just constantly bombarded by uh, all sorts of information and so again I think reflecting on the different domains of wellness. And, and again, it's defined in different ways, but I, I simply look at it as physical, mental, and social. So first recognizing, I think that this is an issue that affects a lot of people. You know, medicine as a whole has a higher suicide rate than the general population does. We know that uh, many of us will have depression. We will fall into a deep hole where we will lose a sense of self-worth, right? And we're all at risk of this. So I think when we think of our physical health, it's relatively easy to picture. You know, if I started to do 60 push-ups every single day in a year, I'm going to be stronger, right? Um, and so the more time we spend ensuring that we are going to um, have engagement and have a process to protect ourselves from these things, uh, socially, uh, mentally, and physically, the better off we are. So here's what happens. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm big into ergonomics. I, I uh, talk about this to anybody who'll listen these days because I had an injury. So five years ago, I had a really bad um, back pain that was limiting a lot of what I was doing. And I started getting more and more uh, around the concept of ergonomics and uh, injury prevention. And I fell upon this really great term, which is prehab. So what did I do? I just went flat out with, you know, all the wear and tear from work, all the wear and tear from the kids and, you know, my weekend warrior stuff, running, playing tennis, whatever else. And then my body breaks down because of bad habits. And then I say, my goodness, I need to go to physio. I need to rehab. What we really should be doing is, especially for the medical students who are early on, looking further ahead and seeing what problems other people have run into. And I'm 10 years out, you know, uh, there are people who are 20 years out, 30 years out, and all of us have run into various problems that you can learn from. And that's a lot of what Reflections is, <laughs> that book. Um, but we have run into physical problems, mental problems, and social problems. Know that it could come. And so you should think about injury prevention from all of those three aspects. And you should think about how can I institute things now um, in order to prevent myself from finding myself in a, you know, in terrible shape <laughs> and at increased risk of 
you know, um, health hazards um, of increased risk of, um, you know, depression and uh, all sorts of, of mental challenges, anxiety, uh, being overwhelmed. And socially, you know, finding yourself isolated because you haven't called any of your friends in a long time because you've been studying, <laughs> right? So um, I like to also talk about the concept of, of micro whatever, micro studying, micro workouts. Um, it actually doesn't take a long time to stay in shape. There are workouts out there that are seven minutes long that are incredible. The challenge that we have with any of this stuff, whether it's the seven minute workout, the seven minute, you know, meditation, um, taking seven minutes to call your best friend because you haven't talked to them in three weeks. What's the problem? It's human nature is we're just not organized. We're not able to be consistent. That's at the heart of it. But if you can, at the very least, when you're busy, take those micro moments to just take five minutes and call your best friend and just say, hey, I'm super busy, but I just wanted to hear your voice. Just wanted to chat with you. Um, those little micro bumps to your wellness probably add up over time and at least keep you swimming while things are busy. Again, not everything happened all at the same time, like I always say. You know, there are moments, I mean, fellowship was so busy. I didn't play any music. And like, music is me. <laughs> you know, it's at the core of who I am. Um, and I missed it so much, but fellowship was so important to me because those are the two years that I was going to build my base. And after that, I knew, you know, if life went the way I thought it was going to go, which it did, you know, I have three kids now, I don't have time to think, <laughs> um, but now I'm playing music with them. So things that you can't do right now because your priorities have changed and your goals are different, doesn't mean you're never going to be able to do them. You just have to be patient. Challenge is that we're not patient, we're not consistent, just by nature. So I would say medical school is crazy busy. You've entered a profession where you do have a duty now to somebody else. It used to be you were studying just for yourself, right? Because you wanted to get into med medical school. You wanted to get good grades in high school. But now your success is also the patient's success. So there is a little bit of that as well. Um, you do have a duty to do call, right? There are things you just can't say no to. <laughs> and so in the midst of how busy things are, at the very least, um, look for those micro moments to keep well from a mental perspective, physical perspective, and um, a social perspective. And again, each of these things is a temperature gauge, right? From, from burnout to wellness. And hopefully you're able to recognize when you're running really low, when the tank is really, really low. And that's the time when it's absolutely critical to ask for help. And there's many resources out there, of course, for that. Hopefully you're not running that low and you're more kind of in the middle. And even then, I would argue again, instead of the rehab, look for the prehab, even then engage and, and look for you know mentors, or trainers, life coaches, you know, these things can be nothing but helpful. Yeah, I think you bring up some incredible points, which will be amazing to our listeners. But, you know, even I'm in my fourth year of medical school, but there are small things that I reflect on, like 
you know, stopping studying and taking that extra hour to sleep or something very basic like that, you know, that extra hour that I spent stressing or learning one more thing in the long run, you know, it doesn't make that much of a difference. And rather, you know, it's at that point where it's better to, you know, get, be well rested and, you know, feel more um, awake for the next day and for everything that is to come, especially when I'm seeing patients the next day. So thank you very much for sharing that. With all of that, we've I'll say just one more thing, which is, you know, here we are in the evening talking. Yes. This isn't the most balanced thing, but if it's something that brings you purpose and brings you joy, then even if it is unbalanced for, you know, some degree, then it still can be valuable. You know, you, you two are obviously passionate about this. You're doing a wonderful job. I'm sure you get excited about the episode when you get to chat with somebody and pick their brains. Um, so there's that part too. Yeah, 100%. And that's true. It's like important to find, you know, what you value. And even if it falls under the realm of school or education or working, you know, it's, you know, what are you taking away from that? Totally. So we're going to switch gears and just wrap up with our would you rather questions. So um, I'm going to ask one and Iman's going to also ask one and then we'll wrap up our episode. So my question to you is, would you rather be the best player on a losing sports team or sit on the bench of a winning one? Sit on the bench of a winning one. Absolutely. If we get a ring and I'm on the bench, I get a ring. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, my question is, uh, would you rather sail around the world on a, uh, on a boat or cycle around it on a bike? Okay, I'm going to pick cycle around on a bike because one of my deep, dark secrets is I don't know how to ride a bike. Oh, no. created this imaginary scenario where I can ride a bike. So I'm all set and I'll definitely take that one. Very fair answer. Yeah. Maybe now's the time to learn. <laughs> My six-year-old is telling me he'll teach me, but he still has his training wheels on. So <laughs> he can teach you with training wheels and then you guys yeah. together. <laughs> That's yeah. the first step. <laughs> exactly. So that does wrap up our episode. So we wanted to thank all of our listeners to listening for this episode of Seeing Clearly, which is our pre-clerkship guide to all things ophthalmology. To stay caught up, please check out our website, www.icurriculum.com, and you can follow us on Instagram at iCurriculum. And Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.